Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming out on this chilly Port Ferry night. Uh, I'm very excited about this uh, this one tonight because the first time I met uh, Mayo was at a, an event very much like this. Uh, it was for a couple of first-time authors, which is fitting, uh, and Jock Sarong, who can't be here tonight, so that's why I'm here. I'm Jock's understudy, in case you don't know. My name's Matt Neal. Um, and... So Maya was at uh, this uh, at an author talk, and I uh, met her, and she was very inquisitive in talking to um, some of the other authors uh, about their books, the writing process, how they got published, like just asking really intelligent, insightful questions. And then the second time I met Maya was at another author talk, and again, just asking more things. She was just so hungry to know about being an author. And then I think the third time was it <laughs> another one. <laughs> so it's just really exciting to be here uh, for this where Maya is the person who gets to sit in that seat up on the stage. So everyone, Maya, Linnell, please put your hands together. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> so uh, the, what is it like being on this side of, of, <laughs> of <laughs> the author talk now that um, uh, Wildflower Ridge is out there and you've done a few of these? How does it feel to be on up on this side of the stage? It's lovely to be up here. I'm absolutely delighted to be talking about Wildflower Ridge because um, I guess when I first started writing the novel, I wasn't sure if it would ever go anywhere, whether it would be published, whether I'd have it sitting in my bottom drawer for the next 20 years and, and no one would want it. So to have it published and out there and, and be on a book tour is a huge honour. And... I mean, it, it felt like you were going to these events to really soak things up and uh, find out as much as you could. So how helpful was it to come to a thing like this as, a, as someone starting out? Yeah, it was hugely helpful because I think one of the things about being a writer is that um, you do a lot of your work alone in your office, just typing away on the computer. And so one of the best ways that you can, um, I guess, work towards getting published is to find out as much as you can. And people who have been published, if you can pick their brains and get a few tips along the way, um, and I always love hearing stories behind stories as well and trying to work out how books came about. So um, I, I love going to author talks. They're one of my favourite little pastimes. Well, let's get the, uh, the formal first bit out of the, out of the way. Do you want to, would you like to sum up Wildflower Ridge? For those, has, has anyone read it? Hands up if you've... Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's your kid. One of your kids with their hands up, isn't it? Yeah. Um, have you actually read it? You have. Did you like it? Very good. You liked it. That's good. That's <laughs> that's. <laughs> um, so, would you like to tell people what Wildflower Ridge is about? Yes. So, Wildflower Ridge is a rural romance, and it's all about um, country families, uh, farming families, succession planning, and it's rural romance. But really, when I was writing it, I wasn't sure whether I'd call it rural fiction, whether I'd call it rural romance, or whether I'd call it women's fiction or commercial fiction. Um, but I think because it had a good mixture of all those things in it, we decided to go with rural romance and that just happens to be one of the best-selling genres at the moment in the romance industry, so um, it's fitted in really well. So we've got Penny McIntyre, who you see here on the front cover, and she's in the city and she loves her life um, in marketing and then all of a sudden her world turns upside down and she's got to... Um, head back to the family farm, which is set in the Grampians. I've made a fictitious town. Um, and so she has to go back to the family farm and it's got her three sisters and her father. They have mixed reactions about her being home. 
And there's also her ex-boyfriend, Tim Patterson, who just happens to be working at the family farm. Uh, yes. Ooh, ah. <laughs> 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 um, you mentioned that there's, th I guess there's some expectations or connotations that come with it being a romance. People may be dismissive of it, uh, similar to like crime books or, or some sci-fi where people just go, oh, you know, it's just lightweight fiction or throwaway stuff. But how do you feel about that? Because, I mean, you actually, you, you blog for the Romance Writer, Romance Writers Australia, That's which right. I didn't know existed, but now <laughs> I do. Um, I mean, h how do you feel about how that genre is regarded? Is it dismissed too easily or wh how do you feel about it? Yeah, I definitely think people like to look down their nose at romance as a genre. Um, but what I'm also hearing from people that are readers is that they love that idea that they can pick up a book and lose themselves in the story. And it doesn't mean that it's necessarily light and fluffy. Um, but I think the fact that, um, that people like to to fall in love. People fall in love all the time for the wrong reasons, for the right reasons and I think it's a really universal type of theme and, and if you can whack a bit of a farming theme in there too and, and, and go with the rural fiction which is you know my genre that seems to um, come together quite nicely. The, uh, the, the rural part of it uh, is just, the f that's the fully immersive bit of the story and the setting and you know, as someone who grew up on farms, I could it, it felt very real. I mean, I grew up on dairy farms, but this is a sheep farm. But uh, so how much of that has come from your own experience or how much did you have to research? Yeah, so where I grew up in Tantanula, um, we didn't have a farm ourselves, but there was farm all around us. And it was a really nice spot to grow up. So one weekend I'd be helping my, my best friend's dairy farm. The next weekend I'd be at my friend's sheep farm and we'd be pulling lambs and tossing them onto the back of the four-wheeler. Um, there was a shearing shed just opposite where our bus stop was, so there was always hay bales to jump across and um, the smell of lanolin and sheep. So I had a, a lot of opportunities to learn about country living and coming from Tantanola, which is a really small town of 200 people, um, the discussion at the general store, at the post office, um, was always about how much rain you had and, and what the, the crops were doing and things like that. And tourists are asking about the Tantanola tiger? That's right, and the Tantanula Caves. And the Tantanula Caves. <laughs> the Tantanula Tiger, for those who don't know, if my memory serves correct, is, was actually an Assyrian wolf that got off a boat and started harassing, killing sheep in the Tantanula district. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah. great story. Anyway, <laughs> side note. Um, the, uh, the, the town is called Bridgefield. So how much of, uh, how much of Bridgefield is Tantanula and <laughs> such places? Yeah, I suppose in there I have a couple of scenes that are in the general store, um, which also serves a p as a post office. And really, I can just think of the Tantanola post office and general store in there. So I guess that's probably one of the big pieces. But I've loosely based Bridgefield um, around the Hamilton Harrow area because my husband Jason grew up on a farm there and there's just some beautiful scenery. So they've got the huge big red gums in the paddock. They've got the lovely rolling green hills and the lush grass. So it was quite easy to to be able to just close my eyes and think of, you know, where I was when I was writing the scene, when she was walking through a paddock, when she's rounding up sheep. I could just close my eyes and very easily imagine um, a paddock uh, from Jason's farm. And because we also lived in Ararat and Stool for a while, we had this wonderful view of the Grampians mountain ranges from our backyard in both places. So that beautiful blue line of mountains has always been pretty special. So I had to just put that in there. 
I, I did find myself kind of trying to figure out geographically where Bridgefield <laughs> is because it mentions Horsham, mentions the Grampians, and I'm sort of trying to figure out if it was where exactly it was. Could, do you think you could probably pinpoint it on a map, like, you know, a fake map, but where, yeah. where it would roughly be? You can yeah. sort of figure out where it is. Yep. So one time when I was towing a trailer back from – I was going between um, Jason's mum and dad's farm and Horsham, and I'd messed up the petrol gauge. So the car was telling me I had plenty of petrol left, and I was pregnant at the time with Charlie, and – towing this trailer and I'm not very good at towing a trailer and I ran out of petrol and uh, so I had to get some random guy who I wasn't sure if he was going to lock me in his farmhouse. A bit Wolf Creek. But very <laughs> Wolf Creek-ish, <laughs> yes. So probably about there is, is you know, where I can see the grampians and I can see the farm quite well. Well, that breakdown's really stuck in your memory, <laughs> hasn't it? That's I'm going to base a book here. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I mean, it's, it's very obvious, well, it seems obvious to me that... Uh, the town of Bridgefield and the references to the sheep farming and the rural lifestyle, all of that feels real. And so it has to have come from uh, experience. It's more, it feels more than just something that's well-researched. I guess a lot of people say that your first book, there's a lot of yourself in it. Mm. So how much of yourself is in the setting and, and the character of Penny and, 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 and everything? How much of yourself is in there, do you think? Yeah, I think I've put a little bit of myself in every single character in this book. Um, so Penny, she was keen to head away from the country as soon as she was old enough. So she went, righto, finished high school, I'm out of here. And I was a fair bit like that as well. So I wanted to head off um, as soon as I was able to and went away travelling. And it wasn't until I was away that I realised, do you know what, that wasn't actually a bad place to live. That's a really good place to raise a family. So... Um, there's me in Penny. There's me in um, at Lara, who um, she loved running. So for a while there, after I'd had my third child, I did a lot of running and uh, and loved it. So I thought, well, I'll have a bit of a, a character that likes running. And then there's Angie, who loves baking. Um, and we've got quite a strong baking theme throughout here as well, because I do love to bake. <laughs> um, so we've got a few subplots in there as well. There's a lot of baking. There's a lot of food <laughs> in there. Um, you mentioned when we were talking beforehand, you said that people who have read this have been inspired to start baking again. From <laughs> Is that something you expected to happen? Yeah, so I've been blown away. Different bits of the feedback of what resonated uh, with different people for the book. Um, I've had a few people say, oh, I actually, I did some baking this weekend and it was because I was halfway through the book and they're up to a scene where she's trying to bake herself happy. And that's based on a Marion Keys who talks very openly about her struggle with depression and baking herself happy as a like a therapy technique and so I really liked that and and I love Marion Keys as an author too so I wanted to explore that in the book um, but yeah it's it's nice I think baking is a universal type of theme that um, a lot of people seem drawn to. The one of the other big themes through it is um, you mentioned it before uh, that succession planning of farms mm. which is a really really tricky thing a lot of young people are moving away which is what Penny's character does. Um, is uh, was that something that was right there from the start in the book? Did you feel that was something that had to be that was a really because it's such a key element of the plot? Was that something you really want to explore early on? Absolutely, yes. So I think if you've got a farming family, you're going to have issues with succession planning, no matter whether you've got one child, whether you've got four sisters, whether you've got a farming accident that makes you think about it sooner rather than later. 
Um, and so when I was researching the book, I went to Sheep Fenchin because Rachel Treasure was going to be doing an author talk there and, and I really like Rachel Treasure's books. Um, and before I went to the author talk, I was doing the rounds of the different stalls and I went to, uh, I can't, Molke, one of the different solicitors because they were talking about succession planning and I quizzed one of the girls there and said, oh, you know, do you have um, many issues of succession? She said, oh, I could tell you some stories. So it's not just different people that I know that are from farming families that I've heard many stories about who's going to get the farm, who's not going to get the farm, how's it going to work. Um, so I think that's absolutely right for drama, succession planning and farming, farming families. The, um, how many, how many dra- I'm always interested in, in, in this, but how many drafts did you do of Wild Flavorage? I've lost count of how <laughs> many drafts. That's a lot. Yeah, so I did a Infinite. few. Infinite. So I did one, one, like the first draft, no one got to see that. That was pretty rough and pretty ready. Um, the second draft, by the time I finished that, that's when I gave that one to my mum and she read it first and my sister got to read it and my nana. And then after I'd made a few changes to that, I sent that one out to a couple of, well, I probably went to about five people after that. And then I tied in their feedback and that's when I started getting it ready for pitching to the publishing houses. Um, And then after, of course, it had gone to the publisher, then it had to go through a structural edit. And the contract that I got for my book was dependent on the fact that I was happy to do quite a large structural edit. They wanted to take 10,000 words off the front of the book, which I was happy to do. I was... I said, you know, you can tell me what to do and I'll do it because <laughs> I'd love to be published. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but luckily they were very happy with the themes of the story and um, we took that 10,000 words off the front, which is mostly, um, I didn't have that, uh, I'd put them on in the second draft, that 10,000 words, and it was Penny's city life. So I really um, put a lot of detail into what she was doing, what her routine was like, her friendship circles and how she didn't get back to the farm much. Um, but then we took that off and, and we wove it through. So, look, there probably would have been at least six or seven drafts. That, um, I mean that edit m- makes sense because it, it throws you, the, the way the story opens, now it throws you right into Penny, kind of at her, I guess, her lowest ebb mm. uh, that we can see. Um, were there any, s- were there any um, suggestions from people you just went, no, I'm not going to change that? Or was everything, did you just get lots of good feedback? Yeah, I, uh, there was nothing that came through that I didn't already know. So some of the things, um, in the first draft, I had a problem with lice instead of the, the more thrillerish <laughs> section that uh, Matt's referred to. I was thinking, what can be the climax of this story? What can be a real big conflict point for them? Oh, look, I'll, they'll have a big lice infestation. But as I'm writing this and I'm thinking... That's not very sexy. Lice aren't <laughs> sexy. <laughs> so I, I took that bit out myself before I showed it to the publisher, luckily. Um, and, yeah, different points that they'd mentioned, that, that, that made sense. So I had one of the characters, Charlotte, in here. She was a lot more um, antagonistic. And so I got rid of her uh, being quite so nasty. She's still not particularly likeable. Mm. But um, And then... I think some of the things that when you've written it and you know the story yourself so well, um, you, you might think that you explained something, but that was in the 10,000 words that you lopped off. So if someone's just picked it up from the start and they're reading it and they get about three quarters of the way through and go, who's this character? I haven't heard much about that. Then it's because I'd already, in my brain, I'd already explained it. 
what were some of the things, the big things you learnt from that first uh, first draft that ended up in the soft draw to the finished product? What are, what are the key things that you really learnt through that process? Do you think? Um, I think having the confidence in the fact that it is it's it's a you know that the writing's good and that I quite um, that I do love doing a, a scene where it has the setting and I've got the kookaburras in the background. So I think kookaburras or magpies or magpies. I think there's a rooster in one of them. Like yeah, <laughs> all sorts of animals. Um, so I think knowing where my strengths lie and knowing where I can tone it down a bit. So I had you know some bits that are a bit too flowery and went on a bit too much in the in the detail and the setting. But some of the bits that um, I think there's one scene in particular where she's got the cookbook and it's her um, her mother's handwriting, her late mother's handwriting, and it's. And that one—that's a scene that flowed really well as I was writing it, and I was immersed in that. And I could have written that scene twenty times over because I loved it so much. And then that's been a scene that people have come to me and said, "I loved that scene in particular," and that made me really upset. And I had someone say on in Mount Gambia at the author talk on Thursday night that that actually made her have a conversation with her mum about what happens to that rest of the book. Can I have that as the daughter? So that was really touching to hear that. You know, it's made people have some conversations that perhaps they might not have had to think about, you know, what is special to them. All, all these reactions that you're getting from people, did, did you foresee any any of those? Like, it sounds like it's, it's touched people in lots of really different ways. There's a lot of really different themes and ideas through it. Mm. So is, is w did you expect any of that or is this all taking you by surprise? It's been really nice. I, I mean, you write it because you want to write it and you've got stories inside you that you want to tell, but to hear from people what they've enjoyed about it and that they've loved it, is it still blows me away. And I've been getting messages the last two weeks since it came out on Monday from people saying, I, I read it in 24 hours and I couldn't put it down or, or people that had waited up until midnight on Sunday slash Monday morning when it was released last week. They'd waited up till midnight for it to be downloaded onto their Kindle on release day and then they were two hours you know, at 2 a.m. they had to force themselves to go to sleep. So, and, and these are people that I haven't said, please buy my book. It's not my sister. It's not <laughs> my <laughs> mum. <laughs> um, Wait, did you make your sister buy a copy? <laughs> <laughs> I had a copy. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I'm glad you got a physical copy because you shouldn't download books. You should buy them from bookstores. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, <laughs> it has been absolutely lovely, the different bits of feedback. that I've, It's really touching and, and the different bits that I didn't expect. Charlie, who read it, and I wasn't sure if he was going to get through it. I thought when he said, can I please read the book, Mum? And I thought, oh, there are some deeper themes in there that might not be 10-year-old child-friendly. But I thought, I'll give him a go, and he might read a chapter and then call it a day. But um, to hear the different bits that he liked, like, I'm as full as a fat lady's undies, little <laughs> sayings like that, but I couldn't help but throwing in. Um, yeah, that's been really nice. I've got to know more about this. Charlie, do you want to come up here for a sec? <laughs> do, you, do you read a lot of books? Yes. Uh, had you ever read a book like your mum's book? Oh, uh, no. Because is it, does it seem like the kind of thing you would normally read? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, well, I'm more into stuff that's not... I'm more into the sci-fi kind of thing. Like... Uh, stuff with young people like fighting zombies and the end of the world or like no fantasy yeah okay fantasy hunger games, hunger games. yes <laughs> so post-apocalyptic youth 
young adult fiction. That's what we're going with? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so what did you like about the book? Uh, I just liked it. I found it pretty good. Just I really enjoyed it being my mum's book and knowing that it was written by someone that I know and someone that I like. That's very sweet. Did you feel like there was did you f- did you feel like there was something familiar in it like that there was things that you sort of recognized as uh, I can see why mum's writing about that or uh, yeah I can tell why how she how she made the sister and Angie love baking because mum absolutely loves baking <laughs> <laughs> did, um, and did you like all the there's there's a few characters that are around your age in it there's some of the kids in did did you like those characters? Did you feel like they were good representations of someone your age? Yeah, kind of. You like only Eddie. Only kind. Yeah, I, I like Eddie. Um, so are you, are you going to read more books like this, or just more of your mum's books, maybe? Probably just my mum's books. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you for taking part. <laughs> um. Can you can you tell me more about the <laughs> Romance Writers of Australia? Because uh, again, I didn't know this was a thing. But what? So what is that, and how did you get involved with it? Yeah. So I was very surprised to hear about the Romance Writers of Australia too, and I went to an author talk at the Portland Library, and Victoria Perman, who is um, I think she's published about six books now, she was a very um, very strong advocate for the Romance Writers Australia, and she said, if you are writing anything romance related, get in touch with these guys because not only do they have a conference once a year, it's usually um, Sydney was last year, this year is in Melbourne. And she said, so we'll drink cocktails and we'll talk books and there'll be publishers there and agents in there. Uh, there's full days of workshops and it's been a fantastic resource. So I got in touch with them um, and joined up pretty early on and, and that was a really pivotal because if I was paying a membership to an organisation, well, I need to darn well be writing. So. That one worked out really well because they had a call for content in the blog section as well and said, is there anyone who's got any new ideas for our blog? We'd like to overhaul it. And so I thought, oh, what could I do? And this was at the start, of, or at the end of 2017 and I hadn't long been a member but I thought, oh, I'll stick my hand up because it'll be a great chance to interview other authors and do book reviews. And Jason said, oh, mate, why are you signing up to that? Because you've already <laughs> spending all this time writing a book and now you're signing up to do free stuff for an organisation that you've only just joined. But I said, oh, there's a method to my madness. Mm-hmm. And, and it was excellent because I got in touch with authors like Blair McDonald and um, Rachel Johns. And it was, it was a great opportunity to be able to make um, connections with authors that were published and doing really well. The, and going to uh, – you went to the conference – and what do you what do you get from going to something like that? Yeah, so that was fantastic to be around like-minded people who are thinking books, talking books, um, loved books and loved writing. So they take their um, the romance writers seem to as a whole take their um, interest in books very professionally. So they're not just considering it to be just a hobby. It's uh, this is something they want to make a proper career out of. And so there's lots of excellent workshops on the craft of writing. There's competitions throughout the year. Uh, which are a really good way to hone your book. And the manuscript uh, made finals in three different competitions last year. And that was really good for me because all of a sudden I had a publisher um, looking at it and it was a blind, all of the different competitions, a blind judge. 
but because I'd entered the competitions and the finals judge was from a publishing house, I had someone saying, I'd like to have a look at that manuscript before I'd even started pitching it. So that was a really good, um, I guess, for me as a confidence booster that A, you know, it was okay. And they gave me some great feedback on the pacing and the title. So I called it Going Back Home. Um, and one of the judges said, that's the weakest name going <laughs> around. So that stuck with me for a while and, and I decided to rename it Wildflower Ridge, which was a good move. Um, if memory serves me correct, your writing background, you worked at, at the paper in Portland for a bit, didn't you? Um, so I worked at the newspaper in Millicent and oh. did a cadetship there um, way, way back when, before children. Um, so I did that and then I have done some work with the newspaper in Portland but more in a PR sense, so okay. working for the council in Portland, um, doing media releases and things like that. So it's quite good to have different connections with media outlets. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'll back that. Um, the uh, And this, this thing you do in journalism, um, how much did that help you as when, you when it came time to write a book? Immensely. So I think, I think it's a bit of a smooth transition to go from journalism to writing fiction because you know that you can put together a sentence that people are interested in reading and I think that you know that you've got deadlines to meet and that you take it seriously. And when you work for a country newspaper and you stuff something up, you know very quickly that people can tell you in the shopping supermarket checkout line that you've uh, messed up someone's name or whether they didn't like the way that you phrased a story. So I think it's a really good um, learning opportunity. God forbid you ever spell anyone's name wrong in a <laughs> newspaper. Um, the uh, and, and I'm, I'm thinking too that that, that probably that I mean you as a country journalist you get exposed to so many different stories and so many different people. Yeah, uh, is that something that you feel rubbed off as well? Like you, I mean, you're getting to hear different voices all the time as well. Yeah, I think so. So one of the stories that um, I think it gives you perspective as well. So one of my stories that stood out for me. Um, really clearly is when I worked at the newspaper and my first front page story was um, about a fatality. And so there'd been an accident, a chap had been killed, he was riding his bicycle in heavy fog and um, he was accidentally hit by a car and killed. And so I wrote the story and I was quite excited about this story, not because of the subject matter but because for me as a cadet journalist this is my first front page story. And um, it wasn't until I had a phone call the next day and it was the person who died, it was their mother calling from away and they didn't get the newspaper. The police weren't telling them much but she wanted me to read her the story. So over the phone, I certainly realised really quickly um, what a responsibility you've got when you're writing as well. It's not just about, you know, I can, I can make a story out of this and I, I think that was a really good learning curve there. But... Yeah, on the flip side, when I was going to the cattle sales and I'd meet different people at um, different events, whether it was school functions or whether I was getting the perks of getting to judge a baking competition at the local primary school, which <laughs> I was happy to stick my hand up for, <laughs> very happy. Um, uh, you do, you meet a lot of different people and I loved the profile pieces, the really long, um, where I get to sit down with someone and, and ask them about walking to school um, with... I think they'd take their shoes off because otherwise their shoes got... Um, all wet and they would walk seven kilometres, put their shoes on when they got to school. So this is at like 18, 90 year old um, people. So it was they were called the my time section. They were really great profile pieces. Mm, uphill both ways in the <laughs> snow. <laughs> um, 
that's a hell of a front page story. I, I, like doing um, fatals is the hardest thing to cover. Doing what they call death knocks um, is the worst. But I've never had anyone say, "Can you read me the story about my dead child down the phone line?" That's yeah. one. How did you deal with that as a cadet? Yeah, that was that was really hard. And I think um, I had it. Um, the newspaper that I worked for were really lovely and they were a family-run newspaper so they were independently owned and they didn't go for the blood and the gore which was fortunate because I could read back what I'd written um, and feel proud of it. It wasn't just a bloodthirsty story, thankfully. If I had worked for a different newspaper, it could have been quite different. Um, but then I had another incident as well when I'd done a profile piece on a young guy who I'd gone to school with um, and he was a marine biologist and he'd he was doing really well in the research field. He'd been out swimming and then I took this beautiful photograph of him which was on the front page of our newspaper which was a lovely, lovely profile piece and it wasn't maybe a year later that he was taken by a shark over near Adelaide and all of a sudden the photograph that I'd taken of him was on the front page of the advertiser. It was overseas. So again, it was another lesson that it's pretty exciting seeing your photo on the, the front page of the advertiser and whatnot but there's human element attached to these things and, and you've always got to remember that there's that's somebody's child that's yeah yeah there's real people involved in these stories yeah mm. um we, t we touched on this a little bit about redrafting and, and such but um and uh, as i said it didn't feel like the romance thing was the the main thread through the story but there's a lot of different threads sort of weaving through it how did you sort of handle like the the, the plotting part of it i mean you there's a lot of balls you're kind of juggling at, at, at every different point in the story. How did you sort of keep track of those things or, or at what point did they seem to be sort of fitting together? Yeah, so I always knew I wanted to be about a girl who got unwell and that was the catalyst that took her back home. So luckily for me, I had a sister who got really sick with dengue fever and so to see someone who was very healthy and vibrant get struck down with an illness that was quite debilitating all of a sudden and, and then got better... That was a really good, um, yeah, so I wanted to use that tool. Um, and then I knew of a farming family that had four sisters and there was a quad bike accident. And my story doesn't bear... Spoiler alert. <laughs> if you read it on the back... Is it mentioned it on the back, is it? It is on the back. All there right, is cool. That's it. Um, I was deliberately not mentioning that, but that's, that's good. <laughs> I can talk about that now. Um and so I knew that that question of what happens if one person wants to farm, what happens if no one wants to farm, what happens if there's divided ideas on what you should do with it. So I had those couple of ideas and then there's some social issues that I've mentioned in the book, which we won't go into, that I felt quite passionately about as well. And I think that, that literature does play a role in bringing these issues to the forefront without ram ramming them down people's throats and saying, you need to believe in this, this or this. I just think there's there's a lot to be said about putting out social issues into into books that's going to be consumed quite widely. Um, there's uh, we, we sort of touched before about uh, the way people look down the nose at, at romance stuff, and a lot of that probably comes down to the Mills and Boone type of thing. But was it um, there's there's a, a, a there's a one scene in there that really uh, I thought is this going to go down to <laughs> Mills and Boone territory? <laughs> Uh, and it starts talking about. <laughs> I'm going to be sensitive here because there's children in the room. But um, <laughs> the uh, uh, Penny and her ex-boyfriend become very close, like passing each other. And it references. Um, 
Sorry, I shouldn't have gone down this path, but I'm too far <laughs> down it now. Was, was it tempting? How did, how did you deal with the uh, the sexy stuff without being sexy is what I'm <laughs> kind yep. of what I'm asking. Yep. Like, did you, were you worried about putting that in there or were you encouraged to not put it in there? Or like how does that work in a, in a romance book? Yeah, so one of my first readers said there's not enough spice in this book. Um, but because, you know, I hadn't gone down that path and I didn't feel particularly comfortable trying to do that either. So I thought, you know what, maybe down the track I can increase the heat level if I feel comfortable doing that. So I thought, yeah, to start off with, I was happy to have it all quite closed door. Um, and, and I've read plenty of fantastic books that have got some, some higher heat levels in and I don't have any problem with, with that at all. But um, I decided that as part of my campaign last year that I would enter every single competition that the Romance Writers offered in 2017, at uh, 2018. And I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't particularly good at writing the spicy stuff. <laughs> and I came second last out of, I don't know, maybe 30, 40, 50 people in, in the Spicy Bites competition. So I learned that wasn't my forte. <laughs> uh. <laughs> there's, there's a comp I think it's a competition, isn't there, for the worst sex scenes? <laughs> I feel like I'm looking at you, Joe, because I feel like we've discussed this before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are you saying you might be a, a chance at winning that one year, maybe? <laughs> Look, my problem was not um, the actual scene; it was the lack of. So, yeah. I, so I'd gone down the, you know, I, I hadn't been detailed enough for this particular competition. It was I way too closed door for what the <laughs> competition called for. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that this wasn't terribly detailed. Um, from what little I've read of Mills and Boone, uh, <laughs> it didn't go. It doesn't go down that that path. But I'm, I'm yeah, it's 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 funny. It feels like that kind of stuff. Uh, even in rural romance, it's almost expected in a way, or that there has to be like as you said, the heat level. I think we feel like we're talking about spicy food when you say that. <laughs> but that, that there needs there's an expectation that there should be some kind of you know raunchiness or something in there. Not not full like Fifty Shades of Grey, but was it was there any kind of pressure? at all to, that you have to spice things up? No, not at all. No, my publisher was very happy with, um, and, and I think I might have asked her the question, do you think it needs more? Or, And she was, no, I'm, I'm happy with that. If, if that's what you're comfortable with, that's fine. All right, we're going to stop talking about that now. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps if I was with a different publisher, they might have been um, keener to have more content there. Mm. So Harlequin, they do a lot of, um, a lot of rural romances and historical romance and, and straight romance as well. Uh, so possibly, you know, they might have pushed the barrel a bit more. Um, the, uh, the other thing I noticed in this, which I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that in, like, in rural romance sort of stuff, but um, there's, there's references very early on to social media. I mean, um, Penny, obviously, she works in PR, uh, and so just every, and marketing. So everything is very much about being in, in touch with that part of the world. Uh, so I found it interesting that you sort of uh, found a way to sort of take that out of it because it, it's, um, it's like in, uh, in horror movies. If a character has a mobile phone, then they can ca just call anyone at any point. It takes a lot of the scare out of it. So you, if you watch a horror movie, you'll find they'll find a way to take the mobile phone out of the situation. And you found a way to do that with social media to take it out of the situation. Was that something you realised you had to do early on? Was that something you gave a lot of thought to? Yeah, I'm not sure I gave it that much thought, actually. Um, yeah, no, I'm not sure. I didn't intentionally do that as a, um, a technique to, to have her off. But 
it does become a bit of a point of contention when she realises what she's missing out on when she hasn't had the access to a social media account. So, And yeah. she can't keep track of her boyfriend back mm. in the city to see what he's up to. Yeah. Because otherwise, I think she would have clued on a lot quicker yeah. to what was going on yeah. I if she was on social media. But you sort of just kind of cancelled that bit out really well. Yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, Does anyone have... Well, I think it's probably time to throw it out to audience participation. Does anyone have any questions that they would like to ask? Don't be shy. Especially if the family members have any, like, you know, tricky <laughs> questions they want to throw out, now's your chance. the listeners at home because this is going to be a podcast uh that question was uh how do you balance your home life and having kids and a husband uh, with trying to write a book so i'm very lucky in that um my husband lets me write at home uh well the kids are at school so i stay home and do that most of the time i do do some um, public relations work as well which is um good to keep some income coming in but um, I'm, I'm quite lucky that I'm being given the opportunity to follow my dreams. Uh, I, was, I had a feeling you did PR stuff as well. That's, that's what Penny does. <laughs> 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 How coincidental is that? That's fantastic, isn't it? Um, one of the things that I did when I was writing the book, because I put her in a marketing firm, and I'm s actually learning that publicity and public relations is quite different to marketing, which I kind of thought they were almost one and the same. But when, uh, since dealing with... Alan and Unwin and what the marketing part of the um, organisation does is quite different to what the publicity department does. But one of the things when I was researching this book is I wanted to work out what type of annual wage um, Penny would be on. And so I got in contact with a marketing company in Melbourne and said to them, oh, look, you know, if you've got a promotion and you're about this level and you've been in it for this long, what type of, um, you know, if you're out of action for 10 weeks, what type of dint would that have on your income? They didn't get back to me, the buggers. <laughs> 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 so I had had a couple of scenes that I had to rearrange there because I had it, well, this has cost X amount of dollars or this client has cost, um, that's walked out of the door because of your neglect, has cost us this. No, they weren't interested. <laughs> but it, it, it's funny because it's funny what you think you need in a book sometimes mm. and what you don't because you wrote around that. It doesn't, it, and it becomes almost a moot point really. It's not yeah. even a thing. So um, how much of you, Feel, well, it feels like you've got a pretty good understanding of how somebody who works in PR or marketing works. So um, that was obviously something you didn't need to research. A great extent, was it? Yeah, not really, not too much. Um, so where I did most of my research was around the medical issues. Um, so we've got a family doctor back in Millicent who, you know, he's seen all different parts of me and cut off bits and whatnot. So he was happy to answer all my questions. And I said, James, is there any chance you could tell me exactly what type of illness? Um, so what did I, I was wondering whether I'd have dengue fever or whether I'd have Lyme's disease or whatnot. I was whatnot. just about to ask that why you went, because well can we say what you went with? Yeah, sure. So you went with Ross River fever. Yes. I was wondering why you didn't go with dengue fever because mm. you knew about that. But yeah. You went with Ross River. Why, what was the difference there? Yeah, so I wanted something that would debilitate her but um, keep her um, 
I guess, keep her away and needing some help and some care for, for that period of time that I want her to be at the farm long enough to, for it to actually become an appealing option as opposed to just there for two weeks and then back to work. Um, so we kind of custom designed the illness, which was wonderful. I said I needed to have this problem. I needed to have this amount of time to, uh, to be an issue, but then I don't want her to be forever ill thereafter. Uh, so that one worked out quite well. And then when we had the farming accident as well, I was in touch with my friend who's the doctor. And then once I'd written the scene, um, I had a friend who's a nurse and she had a look over it as well. And then I also thought, just to triple check, I'd call up Ambulance Victoria and they were wonderful. So they've got a whole designated media unit and they're happy to answer questions. So that was really good. Um, and then because I do have a few shearing references and scenes in the shearing sheds, not only did I quiz Jason about different viable um, issues and conflicts, but I then have a friend who's a wool classer. So I got her to sit down and read, like had the pages all dog-eared and said, here, this bit, this bit, right, next bit. And it was really good that I did that because she noticed a couple of things. So she'd be like, oh, no, no, well, she'd be, she'd be doing this here. That, that wouldn't take her very long. So that's not an issue. Um, and when the sheep's wool was too wet to shear and things like that, so that was, that was really good to have a friend on the ground who'd been spent a lot of time in shearing sheds. Yeah. And that actually becomes a good plot point in it that you can't shear the sheep and so everything, all these problems start mounting mm. because it's, it's raining. It's, yeah. I, as I said, I, don't, I didn't come from a shearing <laughs> sheep farm, so I didn't realise that. So, yeah, that was really good. It, and, and again, it seemed like you'd, you obviously had done your research, so that's, uh, that all reflects really well. Uh, some more questions from the floor please uh, yes <laughs> does ha uh, <laughs> I, I feel are you related to this person that asked this question <laughs> Maya? she asked that did having does having kids help you write do you well. know this do you know this question <laughs> yes Amelia. is it amelia or lucy i couldn't see who asked it amelia yes that's my daughter <laughs> a very astute question yes so I think it gives me more empathy as an author to, um, there's some scenes that um, involve the children towards the end of the book where it starts to get a bit thrillerish. And I think perhaps if I wasn't a parent, I wouldn't have that type of empathy or the insight as to what I'd do in that situation. So I think, I think that's been quite helpful. In terms of getting the writing done, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother story. Oh so yes, uh, yep, I understand that one. But it does feel like you've got a good handle on I mean, the the child, the children characters in this, they're not in a, a huge amount, but they all seem as well fleshed out and as you know, uh, as much like real people as the as the grown ups do. So, do you think having kids made made that easier? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's um, and it's funny because when I was writing the different children, I had um, one of the sisters, Diana, has four children. And I had her with two boys and two girls because I grew up in a family with two boys and two girls. So I just thought, oh, instantly, that's easier. But one of the things that the, the publisher had noticed is that the sisters are all quite similar. So we had to have a point of difference to make Diana different to Angie, different to Lara. And one of the ways that I did that was I made a change to have four boys for Diana instead of having two boys and two girls. So then it could be the sister with the boys or go take the boys or I've dropped off the boys at the stock agency and they're absolutely going crazy, um, which is in one of the scenes. So, yeah, I think, I think that was a good um, interesting thing that they wanted me to change. And um, just on that, I mean, uh, a, a lot of authors um, – struggle with uh, dialogue and finding the voices for different characters. 
especially having four sisters, you want them to be kind of similar but kind of different at the same time. How did you go about that? Yeah, so I think because the different sisters all work in different industries and I had to think about that carefully because um, I've got Angie who's a beautician, she's the younger sister, um, Lara who's a nurse and she's the runner and she's she's not the most likeable character in this book. So you might get three quarters of the way through this book and you'll think, that Lara. Oh yeah, she's terrible. So she ruffles a few feathers. Um, a few of the different readers said they had a lot of trouble empathising with Lara, which, was, which is good because that's what I was going with. Um, yeah, so, and then I've got Diana who's older. She's the mother hen of the group and so she takes everyone under her wing. Um, so, yeah, I, I quite liked writing each of those and to make them different and to have different life situations and circumstances with, you know, husbands and children and whatnot. And just on that, uh, the likability, I mean, Penny as your main character, she's not always totally likable. I mean, she is often thinking things where you're just like, oh, come on, what are mm. you doing? You know that kind of stuff. Uh, did was that something where you that you always that she was always like that on the page, or did you feel you had to sort of rough up her edges a little bit, or how did you sort of go with that? Yeah, so for a while I thought that Penny was quite unlikable, and I think I remember going through that first draft and thinking, no one's going to actually like this girl because you know she's she sounds really whingy, she's sick and and she's not doing well. But I think when I started to go through the second draft and really flesh her out, I could really focus on what was likeable about her and, and with the little lamb that she's got. That was one of my, um, one of the nice scenes. They call it a save a cat the moment, yeah, the, yeah. the save the yeah. cat moment where if you have an unlikable character, you can, you know, have them saving a cat and at least there's something that you like about them thereafter. Yeah, <laughs> or vice versa, if a character kicks a dog, you know that they're a bad guy. Like that's, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so I didn't specifically throw the lamb in there because of that, but I was quite glad that I'd written that scene because, um, yeah, I think it endears people to her. And, and it's a really common thing uh, on, you know, on sheep farms too, that there's a lamb that's not doing very well and they get a little bit of special treatment till they come back to life. So yeah. yeah. Um, do some more questions from the floor, please. Yes, at the back there. Uh, that question for those of you at home it was uh, did you have to do any recon trips to the Grampians to get your head back in that place? Yeah not really because I'd spent so much time um, living in Stall, living in Ararat and then um, at Jason's family farm it was it was quite easy for me to to do that but um, with the second book that I'm writing it's set loosely around Port Ferry so I will be doing when I'm doing the third draft of that I will be going through different streets and, and seeing what I can see from a certain angle as to things that I reference in the book. But, um, yeah, I didn't have to do it too much. I did call the Horsham Hospital to check what the name of their rehab ward is and the, the different setup there because, um, yeah, we have a scene that's set in a couple of scenes in the Horsham Hospital. Um, so I did have to do a little bit of research, but, no, not, not particularly reconnaissance trips to, to specifically get visuals. That's interesting because... Uh, because you made a fictitious town to set it in, but yet you wanted to get Horsham, like the ward in the hospital, just right. Why, why, why that thing has to be right, but you make a fictitious town? Yeah, so I think the thing with um, having that fictitious name of Bridgefield is that 
no one could say to me, no, that street doesn't go to the east, that goes north to south. Yeah. So I, I wanted it so that people couldn't potentially pick it apart or, or jump out of the story because they didn't feel that something wasn't authentic to the setting. But I know that when I read books, I love seeing different town names. So not that long ago, I read Fiona Lowe's book, Home Fires, and she's got a scene in there where she mentions um, Portland. And then one of Blue McDonald's books that I read a few months ago had Mount Gambier in it. And it's just a little throwaway line. It says, oh, remember when you met her? It was at that scout camp that you went to in Mount Gambier. And so I love it personally as a reader going, oh, oh, I know that. Yeah. Uh, I, w I was going to ask about this and I forgot, but you've just reminded me. Next book, tell us more. Yes. So I've got in mind four different stories based around McIntyre Park. Um, so the second book I've uh, contracted with Alan Unwin for to come out about this time next year. And so that one is based on Angie, who's the youngest McIntyre sister. Um, so as I said, I've just um, finished the second draft of that one. And I had a phone call from my mum today, and she's my first reader, and she's just finished it today. And she was a little bit teary because the, the scene right at the end of the book is pleasingly moving. <laughs> Um, and, and she was really thrilled with it. So, I mean, not that your mum normally tells you any different, but <laughs> it's great to know. Uh, some mums will tell you different. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, why Port Ferry? Is that just is that a, a key part of it or just you've got a few scenes set in there? Yeah, so I've called it Port Fairview as opposed to Port Ferry, but <laughs> you guys will all know that it is set loosely Secrets around. Secrets out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and whether... Whether Alan Nummel will want to call it Port Ferry, I'm not sure. But um, I decided that it's such a beautiful setting and, and why not? Because, you know, maybe it will bring people to town. And I've had people that have read this um, from New South Wales and they've said, this Grampian sounds beautiful. I'd really like to come and visit. So, I mean, if I can bring one or two people here because of the book, then it would be great. Yeah. Tourism booster. <laughs> um, someone else had their hand up for a question before? Yep. Is that another <laughs> one of your children? It is another <laughs> one of my children. <laughs> this, is, this is great. What's, what's, your, what's your question? Did you put me in the book? <laughs> <laughs> that was, did you put me in the book? <laughs> no, I didn't put a character called Elizabeth in the book. <laughs> and is this another one of your relatives? It, it is, that's my sister. This is your sister, <laughs> isn't it? I can tell. question was, uh, are you worried about people you know reading your book and, and exposing your soul? <laughs> wow, that's a good question, Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it is nerve-wracking. The first time that I actually gave it to anyone to read, which was mum, um, it is. It's, it's nerve-wracking to know whether you've just put together this whole heap of junk and it kind of sounds okay-ish in your own head, but really it's terrible. Um, but I think once it's been through the stage of a publisher actually wants it, um, it's a bit of a confidence booster that it's not terribly terrible. Um, and then I think because I really enjoyed writing it, it makes me happy to see it out in the world and to know that people are reading it. So I think, yeah, not so much, not too scared. At, we, at first draft and second draft stage, it was very nerve-wracking, the idea of anyone reading it. But once we'd finessed out a couple of the... Um, the the storylines that didn't need to be there. 
If it had a, had a few more sex scenes in it, it m- that might have been an issue. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you probably wouldn't have let Charlie read it then. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, does I- you you said you enjoyed the process of the of the first one? D- is it nerve wracking to know I've only got a year to turn around the the next one? Mm. Like is that on on your mind, or is that how, how does that affect the writing process of enjoyment? Yeah, so when I wrote um, Wildflower Ridge, uh, I spent about 18 months in that first draft, second draft stage. And then we had from March last year until, oh, well, no, the publisher really started, you know, to look at it properly in July. So, yes, it is, it's definitely a tighter turnaround for the second book. But luckily I'd started writing it last May. So I thought once I'd written this first one, before I started pitching it, I'd put it aside, just leave it to um, marinate. M- mature, <laughs> <laughs> like a fine wine. Just like a fine wine. Um, leave it for a while and I'd start something new because I figured that um, if it got knocked back, then at least I'd have something else to console myself with. It's a bit like uh, they say with, with music, you spend your whole life creating your first album and then you get 12 months to write your second album. <laughs> but... With this, the stories being, uh, with it being a, a direct sequel, a sequel, a prequel, or well, it's sequel. What is it? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it's it's standalone, so people can pick up the second book without having read uh, the first book, and it won't matter. Um, but if people liked the first book and they liked the characters, they'll be pretty happy to see them make cameo appearances throughout the second book. Do, do you feel like that's going to make it easier with the second book? Like, if you had to do something clean unrelated to wildflower ridge would would you would that feel harder or more of a challenge yeah i think it would because um it's nice to have to know that i've got the backstory of the main characters you know in my head already um so when it comes to book five then i'm gonna have to make a completely clean (laughs) start i should have made 10 sisters and then i would have been (laughs) right i was just gonna ask uh, four books it must be one for each sister yes yeah are, gonna th- are people going to want to read, uh, given that, as you said, Lara is such an unlikable character for so much of the book, yep. how you g- have you thought about how you're going to make a book around her? Yeah, so I think with Lara, um, she's unlikable because of the circumstances of, of, her, um, of her life. And I think there's a lot that people can grow and people can, you know, mellow as well. So... I've already got some great ideas in mind. I've started storyboarding that one. So I've got these cue cards. I was listening to Graham Simpson the other day when he was at Blarney Books and he's been to the um, Portland Library as well and he talks about when he's just in the thinking stage of his next books, he gets uh, like 100 little cue cards that you'd use if you're doing public speaking and he writes down just an idea. If he can get just one scene, a sentence about a scene for 100 days, then he's got you know pretty much a bit of a book a bit of a guideline for a book so i've been doing that as per graham simpson for this, book three. this is why you need to go to author talks people <laughs> can't stress that enough uh there was another question someone had jody <laughs> yes Do yes. You do your favourite writing podcast, other than this podcast. I was going to say the Blarney <laughs> sessions, <laughs> absolutely fabulous. Highly recommend those. Excellent, good plug, <laughs> pluggity plug plug. Uh, yes, but some other ones. Yes, so I really like um, so you want to be a writer um, with Alison Tate and Va- Valerie Koo. That's been one of the ones that I've listened to for the last couple of years. Ever since I decided I was going to write a book, I was going to learn a fair bit more about what um, 
you know, picking up as much as I could. So that one was fantastic. There's also Rights for Women, which is all about Australian writers, and um, that's by Pamela Cook and Kel. Uh, I can't remember Kel's surname, but Pamela Cook's the lady that does that one. There's also Talking Aussie Books with a lady called Claudine Tanellis, and I was a bit excited to be a guest on that podcast. Um, and they interview a wonderful range of Australian authors. Um, the Better Reading podcast is quite a good one as well. Um, writer on the road. So I do, I do rotate between all these different podcasts. So if I'm cleaning the house or out in the garden, um, planting some veggies, I usually have either a talking book or a podcast on the go. I feel like I should be writing all these down. Um, <laughs> there's also one that we had, uh, JP Pomari here recently. Yes. He's got a very uh, highly recommended uh, writing podcast as well. Um, well, it's good that you're, you're going to start doing the rounds of these all these <laughs> podcasts, I'm sure, as a special guest. Um other questions? More questions from the floor? Did yes? Yeah. Same question. Did your parents always think you were going to be a writer? Or when did you decide you were going to be a writer? They did, actually, which is a really nice, a really affirming thing, I think, for me, because I'd always loved books from a very young age and always read um, very widely, and I had an insatiable appetite for books. So, and, and mum and dad said to me, you'll be a writer one day, mate. One day you'll write a book. So, luckily for me, I had that, um, I guess, belief in me right from the start before I could even, um, you know, consider myself a writer. And then back three years ago when I was going to look at going back to work after the children, being home with the children for quite so um, long and deciding what I was going to do. And I thought my number one dream is always to be, to be a writer, to write a book. So... Uh, let's put you on the spot here. Are your kids going to be writers? And remember, they're in the room right now. <laughs> I'd certainly encourage them if they wanted to. I think there's a lot to be said about writing down things and, and keeping them. So if they wanted to, I'd encourage them to. It's not. I don't think I'm going to be a millionaire out of it. <laughs> <laughs> they might not be able to keep me in the luxury to which I'm accustomed when I'm <laughs> old. <laughs> but uh, I think it's great because having always been such a huge writer, I've got, you know, I've... I've unwittingly documented all the different stages in my life, whether it's been in writing diaries, whether it's been writing letters to friends, whether it's been writing articles that I've had published um, in different places. It's it's a great um, way to document your life. Well, it sounds like th they've uh, books are a very big part of, of their lives already. That's that's And that's the first step, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Is that something you've really made sure you've encouraged that part of it? Absolutely, because we always had lots of books as kids and our parents always read to us. It was the number one thing for the kids is that they were always reading. So at the moment, Charlie and I are reading The Hunger Games. Elizabeth and I have just finished Heidi Grows Up and Amelia and I are reading Jessica Townsend's second book, which is called Wondersmith, the sequel to Nevermore. So we do a lot of reading. Excellent. <laughs> uh, any more questions? I'll even take more questions from family members now. If <laughs> that's <laughs> Do we, is there a question from your husband, perhaps? Is he up the back there? No, no question. When's when? Oh, okay. When's Jason going to read the book? Is the question. Have you not read it? Read most of it in varying stages. That's a no. <laughs> Sounds like a no. Yeah. 
that's yeah. definitely a no. Um, Jason's not a huge fiction fan, so he'll read any magazine or newspaper that you put in front of him, but he's not a huge novel reader. But he's he's lived this book for the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> so he probably doesn't want to hear. He's probably got a fair idea of what's going on there. He's I'd got say. a very good idea. But until you write a, a great biography of someone, you're probably not going to read it, is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, any more questions? Yes? We can do this properly. Uh, in terms of authors that have really influenced you or been big inspirations for you, you've mentioned Marion Keys and Fleur. Are there any others from your childhood or um, you know, even your teenage and adult years that have really inspired you in not just this book but in writing in general? That's a very good question. Um, I think Enid Blyton was a huge influence earlier on because uh, she had such magical stories and you just whisked away to a different world as soon as you were reading her. Um, in terms of in the high school years, I really liked Judy Bloom. So she had some great stories and, and things that were really relatable. They were about issues that were going on with teenagers. So I really liked her. Um, and then as an adult, I read so widely. I, I loved John Grisham when I was probably in late high school. So he had fantastic, and I, I was hoping I'd be a lawyer, but I'm not particularly good at confrontation. <laughs> so <laughs> turns out I can read about it really well. Yeah. But, uh, I've seen lawyers who aren't very good at confrontation. It doesn't work <laughs> in a courtroom. Um, no. And given you, you uh, as, as you said, you're very w widely read, is, are there other genres you want to deal with? Do you want to write other kinds of books when you finish with McIntyre Park? Um, I think rural romance um, fits me quite well because, you know, I do like that, um, the rural issues and whatnot. Um, I always thought that maybe when I was writing this that perhaps it could be a cosy murder mystery. I love Kerry Greenwood and she's a fantastic author. She wrote the Franny Fisher series, the Corinna Chapman series, um, and there's a few other um, cosy mysteries that aren't really gory that I can stomach and I thought well that might be something that I'd go down the path and, and I did start out um, I, I, I did a couple of uh, creative writing classes and one of them I did a trial of you know this is the story that I wanted to go in and all of a sudden you know I had bake sales and I had um, like the country cooking competition and CWA so CWA groups and all that sort of stuff absolutely yeah. so I was kind of veering back towards this anyway so, yeah, and the, the scene that I wrote with someone being abducted wasn't particularly good. So, that one, <laughs> choop, straight to the... Right. So, you can stay away from abduction scenes and sex scenes. That's uh, right. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe a, a gritty courtroom drama or something. <laughs> yeah, I think that would involve a bit too much research. A lot of research, yeah, yeah. <laughs> research is hard. Um, any other questions from the floor? <laughs> As, uh, are you ever going to write a recipe book given there's so much baking in uh, Wildflower Ridge? <laughs> well, I think pretty much all the recipes that I love are other people's recipes. So um, I think I'd feel pretty bad if I was ripping off their recipes. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? This has been good audience participation. Sometimes everyone just sits there and looks at the floor, so this is good. <laughs> it helps when you've got lots of children in the audience, apparently. <laughs> And as a disclaimer, I did say to them, you're only allowed to ask one question between the three of you. You need to decide who's going to ask the question. Oh, but well, we've got three out of them, that. one each. That's <laughs> far more equitable and, and, and fair. But if, if one of the kids has another question, we'll allow that. <laughs> no. Uh, 
Thank you very much, um, Maya. And and look, as I said at the start, I th- this probably isn't the kind of book I would typically read, but I really did enjoy it. Uh, it's very beautifully written, and uh, and it really captures the the sense of of place and of of rural living, which uh, you know, as someone who grew up on a farm, I can you can kind of see through that when people were doing it wrong. So <laughs> you definitely didn't do it wrong. It was very good. So um, everyone. Maya Linnell, thank you for coming along. Thank you. And a very big thank you to you, Matt, for having me as your host, and to Joe from Blarney Books. This is the most beautiful bookstore uh, in all of Australia, possibly. It's colourful. It's got beautiful, cosy seats. There's books everywhere. There's quotes from Roald Dahl around the room. Um, it's a really great place to the come. The train set is great. Uh, my son particularly <laughs> loves the train set and the piano. So, uh, yeah. Highly recommend it. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you should definitely come to Blaney Books in Port Ferry. It is such a great bookstore. So, on that note, <laughs> good night. <laughs>